0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art is presenting the first retrospective of my first guest, Anthony Hernandez. His photographs have consistently looked at parts of America that hide in plain sight, especially parts of Los Angeles. The show, which was curated by Aaron O'Toole, features 160 images. It's on view through January 1st next year. The museum's excellent catalog features an extraordinary introduction by Robert Adams, we all wish we could write so well, and an engrossing conversation between Hernandez and Louis Baltz. Amazon offers it for just $40. bucks. we will have a link on manpodcast.com. As the contributions by his peers to SFMOMA's catalog may suggest, Hernandez has long been an artist's artist. The last major monographic exhibition of his work was in 2011 at the Vancouver Art Gallery. It was co-curated by Jeff Wall. On the second segment, Getty Museum curator Karen Hellman discusses Real Ideal, Photography in France, 1847-1860, to 1860, Which is on view at the getty through november 27th the show looks at how early french photographers engaged in cultural and intellectual debates with their peers in fields such as painting and fiction but first anthony hernandez after the break the hammer museum in los angeles presents in real life 100 days of film and performance now through January, head to The Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trajil Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Oleson, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology, from Artists Film International, Echo the Videos of One Otrix, Point Never, and Related Works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video, after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for. Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933-1957, on view through January 1st. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art, with works by 90 artists including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight-Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. And we're back. Anthony Hernandez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to start with a story that curator Erin O'Toole tells in her catalog essay. And it's a story of your going to the Norton Simon Museum in 1970 with a box full of pictures. Could you, could you, could you tell that story?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, somebody, you know, I, I, I had a few back then, uh, not many, but a, a, a few 11 by 14, I believe, prints. Maybe they were eight by 10s. Anyway, somebody said to me, you know, there's a curator at the Pasadena Museum for Photography, I think, and you should go down there. So I just went down there one day, not knowing I should call ahead and get an appointment, or whatever. I just went there and I just walked into the office downstairs and I said, is 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 there a cura- curator here for photography? He said, yes, there is. I said, well, can I show him these prints? <laughs> And they said, "Well, do you have an appointment?" I said, "No, I don't." So, but I had this box, a 11 by 14 box of prints or something, and I just. So the the receptionist was just a little taken back. She said, "Well, you just sit down for a minute." And I gave her the box, and I was waiting. And she took the box and went. And after a few minutes, Fred Parker came out, who was a curator there, and said, "And Fred's a big guy too." And he came out and said, "Who are you?" And I said. Well, I introduced myself and I said, and he introduced himself. He said, I just finished putting the show, California Photographers Together, and I'm going to put you in it. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. But so I went back to his office and we started chatting and he was going through the pictures and he said, OK, well, uh, I, I'm making a selection. And so it all happened very, very quickly. And But I was so not knowing how these things worked. He never told me that there was actually going to be an opening for this show. So I missed the opening. (laughs) I wasn't even there. (laughs) But I'll tell you another end story that maybe I forgot to mention to other people that I was at a little Mexican joint at night uh, near Sunset on Alvarado to have uh, something to eat. And we're talking about like 11 o'clock at night or something like that. I'm there with a friend of mine and these two women are sitting waiting to get some food. This is like, you know, a, a typical outside place where people are standing around, not inside a restaurant, just like one of these, then a little fast food Mexican place. And these two women are there and I'm start chatting with these two women and they had just come from that opening. And I said, really? I didn't." Then I found out there was an opening. I said, well, uh, I was in it. <laughs> and then one of them said well, which which pictures were they and described the pictures and said i remember those pictures well I, anyway to cut a long story short that woman that young woman i was talking to we became involved a girlfriend boyfriend <laughs> started from there so you know it's it just uh, crazy but anyway that's how it happened with fred and um he was very enthusiastic because i i didn't know anybody at all in that California photographers not anyone at all and so then he had this idea i guess that he wanted to do this show crowded vacancy with lewis balls and terry wild who i didn't know but he invited us all for his house for dinner and that's how we could meet and uh the idea was their pictures with my pictures when i saw their pictures i said well maybe you need another person like you know the pictures you guys are making, these kind of very minimal, for, formal kind of pictures. And they said, no, no, we need your pictures of figures, you know, on the beach and the street scenes in downtown. And Lewis, who I just met then, uh, said he really, really liked the pictures and he really thought it would it would be a better show, a greater show, a stronger show with my pictures in there. So they talked me into it <laughs> So to be to participate, which I didn't think I, you know. At first, I didn't think that it was going to work, but anyway, it, it did work, and it, it did happen. They did publish a small catalog called The Crowd of Vacancy, and it got a lot of attention. And that just started, in terms of meeting people and starting to be in these, you know, group shows, and things started happening from that. So I think uh, Fred Parker was the first person who, you know, there's always somebody behind people that are helping you along the way. And even though, you know, you're out there alone, alone making the pictures, there's always somebody in the background, and Fred was the first one.
0: Well, let me start with the with the beach pictures, because they are, as we're talking about, among the earliest works in, in the show at SFMOMA. And they are often discussed in terms of Edward Weston's famous Nude on Sand, Oceana, from 1936, and we'll have an image of that on manpodcast.com, of course. So, the Weston features a lithe, leggy, free, kind of hedonistic, splayed female nude on a pristine, perfect beach. And your beach pictures are not that. And I think people have tended to gravitate toward talking to you about the figures in your beach pictures. They're often clothed, exhausted, sleeping, and not pointedly not luxuriating. All, all true, of course. But I wanted to ask you about the surface of the sand in those pictures. The surface of the sand in your beach pictures is the way the sand looks like at 4 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon, after all of Venice and Santa Monica has has traipsed all over it. Was it important to you from the start that the beach looked used, not 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 pristine and pretty like the Weston Beach?
1: I never thought of it that way. I mean, Weston was the first you know person that uh, I mean really. That's how. That's actually. I think how, how I'm here because, a flame of recognition just like blew me away, and I said I want to make pictures like that. Meaning, I want to make pictures that are that basically that vision. I mean, he, I think of him as a visionary, and so those pictures, that clarity of vision. I said I want to make pictures like that. But the beach pictures of the, the actual photographs of the sand itself. The reason that I started those beach pictures is because. Long Beach, where I, where I first started, I used to go there as a kid, in other words, as a, and, and go in the water and just hang out there with my parents and all that. So I went back there and I started making these pictures of people usually alone to, on the beach. But it was because of Weston's, that the reference to the sand, even though his pictures of sand were, it's quite different, but just to reproduce sand in a black and white print, that I was very drawn to that. And that's really w- what it was. It was, just, yes, I love those Weston pictures, but not just the sand pictures. I mean, not, not the, just the figures, but, you know, all of the objects and, and landscapes, you know, are lots of pictures.
0: So you were conscious about getting surface and texture into the work, but not so much as a counterpoint to Weston. Right, right. Mm, that's interesting. Um, we'll come back to surface and texture, and I think again and again as we, <laughs> as we talk, it's one of my favorite things about the work. So, like you said, concurrently, you're making a lot of street photography, not just in Los Angeles, but wherever you can manage to travel in your in your young, early career period. This is uh, 6970. It's kind of closer to the end of American street photography than to the beginning. And your street pictures are full of people who are alone um, or, or, or who are separated from what's going on around them, which I think really sets them apart from a lot of American street photography. Do you remember thinking through back then what made a good street picture for you what, and, and, and whether or not that was different for what made a good street picture for a New Yorker or somebody else?
1: You know, when I started photographing LA, and Aaron refers to it in her text, that I was drawn to downtown LA because I grew up as a kid just knowing downtown LA, going, hanging out there, going to pictures, and me and my cousins just, you know, going through all the streets, just, and that was an exciting time and place. So when I started thinking about, oh, where where do I take pictures? LA was was the first place to start, without thinking about the tradition of street photographs you know from new york or anybody anywhere else and so that very beginning was just oh i'm I'm photographing a place i know uh, very you know where i grew up and and all all that and but when i started later uh, finding work you know whether it's Robert Frank and you know the tradition, so to speak. I realized that that da- I call it a dance, that dance walking through a crowded street in downtown L.A., like a crowded street in you know Broadway, New York. That I wanted to focus, and it would be like a, a narrow focus because I always thought of it as a very uh, all these hard surfaces, hard light, maybe uh, some of the people. It's kind of hard just what are you doing down there you know shopping or whatever and and so I was thinking I'm I want to make these pictures that are that are all so to speak the same or have that same weight and and that's one part the, the, the other part of like walking through and, and having this dance is that whatever you're gonna try to photograph it's photographing it in such a fluid fast way that you can't think, you know, you're only, it's just all intuitive. So your question about the the people being isolated, well, whatever I'm drawn to, it doesn't just have to do with these pictures, but later pictures as well. I can't put my finger on that in terms of what drew me this way and, and those kinds of moments. But that was all what I was drawn to. It's all uh, in one piece, you might say. So that's just something I started uh, doing. And I think of myself in terms of the street is there? there's so much going on, you know, that it's, I mean, you don't stop and think, oh, I'm going to make this kind of picture, that kind of, thing. you're just making pictures, trying to make pictures. And some of them are successful and some of them aren't. But that intuitive thing, there's, there's. Uh, I'm drawn to in, in terms of my eye, so to speak, so many things that you can't stop to try to figure that out. You're just part of that movement. And I loved that dance, so to speak, walking through. And, you know, it, it, it was just a very intuitive, fluid way of working. But the, the the moments of maybe these private moments that maybe I was experiencing as I approached somebody, even even though I was going to them very quickly. That's what I was drawn to, and that's what I photographed.
0: One of the places you made street pictures was in Vietnam, specifically, for example, Saigon. You went to Vietnam in 1972, which was just five years after you'd been there as an army medic during the Vietnam War. I, thi- I think that in the last decade or two, it has become routine for Americans who fought in Vietnam to go back kind of maybe so common in the last half generation that we don't really think about it. But in 1972, it most certainly was not. Um, American soldiers just, I mean, you know, just didn't happen. So why did you go back?
1: One of the reasons I went back because I had never been to Saigon. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was all over Central Highlands and all the way up from Da Nang and, and different places, but I never got to Saigon, and, and so... When this grant, uh, the Ferguson grant, somebody told me about the, Sherry Heiser years ago, told me about, oh, the of photography are going to start to give out this grant, the Ferguson grant. You should apply for it. I said, oh, and you know, I started thinking, if I got a grant, where would I go? And I said, oh, I'd like to go back to photograph in Saigon because I had never been there and I wanted to just check it out so to speak so i did i mean i did find out about it actually i met until adams it's kind of like that story of fred parker i just i was on my way to san francisco and i just showed up at in Adams' house you know i asked the mailman Where does into adams live he's, he told me and i just knocked on his door and had in my box of prints.
0: <laughs> to show Ansel?
1: Yeah. And I said, I hear that you're you're gonna start this grant. I wanted to find out about it. And he said, Well, I'll let you know about it. We're setting it up. And he you know gave me a tour of his dark room and he looked at my prints and and he was very nice and he probably thought, Well who is this person? <laughs> but, you know, that's just what I did and I ended up getting the first Ferguson grant. Which I was really surprised at, you know, then figuring out what the Friends Photography and Ensel Adams and that, all that kind of work was. I thought, wow, to get this from them. And then uh, that Fred had actually uh, moved on from the, the curator at the Pasadena to being the curator and director of the Friends Photography. So it all kind of fell in place, so to speak. And I did go back to Vietnam and, re- and Fred raised some other money for me because it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the grant. I mean, and I ended up spending two months, I believe, in um, Saigon photographing. Now, just to let you know, uh, I am going to uh, publish a, another book. of I've edited it down to the, the best pictures, uh, which I have about 26 pictures from Saigon, uh, which I'm going to be doing. Uh, but as soon as I've finished all this, this other stuff. And I'm very happy about that. And it was really an, a, a great time for me to be there. And the interesting thing about being in in Saigon, which I, I, I'll i tell you now, is I, when I got there, I, I didn't know anybody. But I, and I was in a, a restaurant, air-conditioned little place because it was it was hot. And somebody came up to me and said, you must be Anthony Hernandez. <laughs> I said, I said well, yeah, who are you? Yeah, I am. Who are you? He said, we, we've been waiting for you. Hell yeah, we and so what it was is it was a group of all the the photojournalists that you know are in Saigon you know hanging out and so I was asked to go and join them in another table in this restaurant and I did you know I met all the people from you you know UPI I mean all all the you know services news services a, a lot of them were there not just photographers but journalists. And uh, they asked me, well, who are you working for? I said, I'm not working for anybody. (laughs) That was a complete surprise. You would have seen the faces of these people. They just said, you're not working for anybody. You know, I said, I just, and I explained I'd been there as a medic, and I came back as an artist to photograph. And they were just blown away, you know. But anyway, I I did uh, meet them, and I I did go to, um, you know, have some parties that they were throwing for different events in, while I was in Saigon. But what really happened, this is the interesting part, is that some of these photographers I met, I, I said, well, how long have you been here off and on? And some of these guys had been there for a long time doing stories and going back to the States, coming back. But they had never photographed in Saigon. They had never thought about photographing on their own. And so what happened after I was there photographing, I knew uh, like, uh, what's his name? David Burnett uh, was there. I bumped into him on the street and he was trying to photograph (laughs) because he had had realized when I had mentioned all that, he said, you know, I never thought about that. So then he knew he was going to be leaving soon and he may not be coming back. That he started trying to photograph in in Saigon (laughs) and I bumped into him. (laughs) I thought that was wild. That was also a point, by the way, when I met all these guys, I thought, you know, wow, I guess that's a career, you know, being a photojournalist. But I realized that wasn't a career that I I was going to follow, you know, but it was interesting just to to, uh, come up against that kind of world, you know, and mine was a very different world. at At that point, in other words, what I thought I was trying to do
0: In the late 70s, you moved away from street photography and into a series of work called Automotive Landscapes. It kind of shows the forgotten places necessary to Los Angeles car culture, indeed American car culture, and kind of hints at the planning decisions and and structure of American post-war society that car culture enabled. I want to talk about some of those Pictures, but before we do, there is a picture in the book, of, uh, in the SF MoMA catalog, of you in the automotive landscapes period. It's a um, it's a Grant Rusk picture of you standing on top of a VW bus with a platform and what looks too small to be a four by five camera, but might be. No, it's a five by seven. Oh, it's actually. a five by seven. Okay, it's just that the scale of everything else in the yeah, picture is <laughs> right. looks tiny. So in the context of what you were saying about having met Ansel Adams a few moments ago, Ansel famously built a rig on top of a station wagon from which he often took pictures, which was Ansel Adams' way of, it was the closest Ansel Adams really ever got to acknowledging Carlton Watkins, the the California pioneer who took pictures from on top of a wagon. Did, Did you build a platform on top of your VW bus just because that made sense pictorially, or did you get the idea from Ansel Adams?
1: No, I didn't get the idea from Ansel Adams. There are certain automotive kind of spaces, you might say, that I thought, oh, I I need to get up high, you know. And and that's why the VW bus, which I had, uh, I could put this platform on there and start photographing from that. But no, I I didn't think about, you know, Ansel Adams on his – even though I knew he made pictures that way. It it wasn't a conscious thing, oh, I want to do it because of, of that, you know. Past, past. In other words, people have been using it that way. It just meant that I could make uh, different pictures, of, and not just on the, you know, f- on the ground, but on, on top of the of the of the bus, right? But I should tell you that actually, the automotive landscapes really started in 1976, 60, 76, 77. So what I did is I started uh, when I stopped photographing people, and the last photographs of people is 35 millimeter black and white is in New Orleans, 1976 which is in the book, uh, of, actually, and it's a portrait of a, of a man in New Orleans number 2. That is the last 35-millimeter picture I made. And that, by the way, just to, uh, technically, it's an interesting thing. That picture is shot, there are only a few in the book, It were shot with a 50-millimeter lens, which I borrowed from Lewis Balz because I, I didn't own one, and I wanted to make a different kind of picture. So he let me his 50-millimeter for a while. And uh, the the 50, there are a few that are in the book are shot with his 50 millimeter lens. And, you know, and, and then I stopped using it. But so that's the last picture I made. And then when I was in L.A., I realized I, I, that I wanted to make other pictures, but, but I, I still have my 35 millimeter camera. And I started I just started thinking about what, what really what was L.A. and L.A. was the automobile. And that's how I got this idea. Oh, I'm going to photograph these. I call automotive landscapes, but I started with 35 millimeter, and it's moving street, another street kind of photograph because I'm actually just walking and photographing these these scenes. The photographs that are in the book are from the 5 by 7, but the reason I switched is because I was not happy with the print. In other words, I wanted to make larger prints, and then I got an NEA grant '78, so I bought the 5 by 7 Deardorff, and it's the same kind of format for the 35mm that I that I already made, and I wanted to continue that format. So then I switched to the 5x7 uh, to continue the, autom- the automotive uh, landscapes. And that's how that happened, you know, switching from the – but it started from 35mm black and white, and then switched to the 5x7 black and white. And then from then on, I, you know, I just made those different bodies of work from – Five by seven black and white work, and then stop that stopped in eighty three I believe yeah eighty three so that's just the chronology you might say
0: for the automotive landscapes pictures, this is another place where my eyes go right to the ground to the surface of of the ground, and the surfaces are tremendous I mean they're full of lines and blots and drips, and you know I mean I just kind of look at them and I think, oh my God what. Think of all the stuff leaking out of all those cars for all those years.
1: Oh yeah, you know I have to. Now that you, t- you just tr- triggered something, I should mention to to you because I think uh, Aaron mentions it. So if we if we go back to the very beginning, the very very beginning of the, the, what I call it uh, of my first gesture, the very first pictures I try to make with a uh, little Hawkeye family camera was of an empty lot next to a car repair place. And they were throwing out all these parts, you know, discarded parts. And it's just some weeds and mostly dirt, empty, small lot, which I was uh, walking past on my way from school, high school back to home. And that's what I chose to photograph the very first. And when the question you asked before about I was saying that I, I, I don't know how you can what drew me a certain kind of street picture 35 miller people what this was the very first thing and what drew me to that that kind of scene of that empty lot that i still can't put a, a finger on obviously but that was the very first thing i remember looking at that in a very serious way it's like Oh, with that little Hawkeye looking down like like a you know a hostile. I mean, excuse me, uh, like a rollerflex looking down into it, saying, "Okay, take a picture here on the outside, move in, take another picture there, move in a little further, take another picture there, another, move in a little further and take another one." Well, that way of working, basically, I continued later, you know, uh, not the street photographs. But everything else I did after the, the photographs of people, in that way.
0: In the in the automotive landscapes pictures, are you thinking about things like contemporary painting, like Cy Twombly, or or drips from say Pollock, or minimalism? Because a lot of, I mean, I, I Louis Baltz was a friend of yours. He made several bodies of work that were about engaging with contemporary sculpture and painting. And when I look at these pictures, I see, I see lots of art history in them.
1: I guess for me, I, I was thinking of I, these pi- pictures. I, I don't think about, uh, and I obviously wasn't thinking about painting or Saitwami or minimalism things like that. I, I, you know, to me, I was thinking this is a real LA or parts of LA that that are uh, everywhere, you know. But th- in other words, it's it's almost like. You don't notice this in, really because it's just it's everywhere uh, the, the automotive culture so to speak M- my term automotive landscapes but I was thinking of these more as um, and that's why I like that title automotive landscapes because I wanted to make landscapes but uh, about something <laughs> you know not just pure landscape so that that's that's where it comes from it, it, for these that body of work.
0: My guest is Anthony Hernandez. We'll be right back after a break. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore the charming mystery of an artist's dog who shows up in several manuscripts. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the Iris and receiving an email whenever there is a new post. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu slash iris. After a major three-year expansion, The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher Collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SFMOMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. And now back to my conversation with Anthony Hernandez. So as we get into the late 70s and early 80s, the new topographic style picture-making, Hank Wessel, Lewis Baltz, Joe Deal, is all well-established, and they're all working in a manner that might be described as spotlighting the way in which the land particularly, but not, not not only in the West, was misused. And your work of the same time has a very different and much more acute emotional power and it might be considered as looking at how humans were i don't know this isn't a very good word but misused by a broader society and i I think the public transit areas work seems like a really key pivot point was that an extension of the automotive landscapes work or was that a conscious bridge towards something else
1: No, it was uh, things um, when I started uh, or was doing the automotive things. So I, you know, when I was doing all that, walking and and photographing 35 millimeter, and then going for the five by seven, on the periphery of my eye, I was realizing there, uh, in that landscapes of automotive pictures I was trying to make, I did notice, you know, people waiting for the bus, and I started thinking, well, I should look at that as well. And so one thing. Kind of just led into another. And those the automotive pictures really led me into looking at these people who didn't have cars were waiting for the bus, you know. Yeah, and these so are, that...
0: these are people who are sitting on on benches, not a tree in sight or shade in sight ever. I think in in like almost any of them, and they're waiting next to big open multi lane massive roads. The feeling in these pictures is that, oh, my goodness, those roads are very large and these people are very small. And how disjunctive and uncomfortable that is.
1: And and it's the waiting. And the know. waiting, yeah. yes. And the waiting, waiting in that. the hot sun. Right. Exactly. So, but those pictures to me, when I started public transit area number 45, that is actually the very first picture I made. It's, not, it's very close to where I live, an apartment in, in L.A., third in Vermont. And so that's the very first picture I made. And when I made that picture, I started thinking, I mean, whoa, this is going to be great. Because uh, what what occurred to me is that here it is, L.A. I'm going to photograph these bus stop pictures, and it's going to be the same picture, but all over L.A. And they're all going to be the same picture, but all different. So that really excited me, you know, and that's what happened. You know, I just started. Uh, and those are the, uh, in terms of bodies of work, I made mean more of those pictures than, than any other you know, bodies of work with the 5x7, I mean.
0: That, that idea does kind of align them with new topographics photography in a way because those are the same buildings, just different all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And But I also like the fact that I created from the 5x7 work, and I mentioned it, that, that if I'm walking down the street and I stop to make a picture of a bus stop, I could make that picture in one minute and then just, just keep going. It worked that way. I mean, I worked at it so well that it was very fluid. And I loved doing it that way. And it just felt just, just right. So I never waited for anything to happen. I was just constantly moving, photographing as I went along. And that's the way it felt like the, the dance was a slower dance, you might say now. you know. But it was still a dance, you know, a slow dance not a fast one. So I, I it kind of integrated that other way of working.
0: The body of work that comes next-ish is public use areas, which are pictures. So for, this is going to sound like a silly thing to say, but for people who haven't walked around downtown LA, because I assume no one walks around downtown LA, the buildings, uh, the skyscrapers in downtown LA aren't gridded into the street, the way they are in New York, you know, they're they're set back and elevated, or somehow separated from the life of the city by an artificial, post brutalist, difficult to navigate, stand in, sit on
1: surfaces. Yeah, yeah
0: it's just. It's, it, I mean, they're these weird in between landscapes. What got you interested in those? Because they do seem to follow logically after the bus stop pictures. But in a way, they don't in the sense that, you know, kind of Joe Schmo is sitting in the bus stops, whereas it's a very different money landscape you're photographing in the public use areas. Yeah.
1: Well, to me, the, the, the bus stop pictures led, I mean, I started making these because what it is, it's how people spend their time. For instance, this is all during like lunch hours. And where do you go if you want to go have a sandwich but sit outside or read a book or and what? How are you going to use that landscape? Because you're going to place yourself wherever you feel comfortable or, or whatever, you know, whatever, wherever the place is, even though there might be a, a bench that's actually set up that way for you. And so I was really interested in, uh, again, the backdrop uh, of all the bus stop pictures, all these the street and all the traffic and all that r- repetitive. And this is the same way uh, looking at that backdrop of L.A. And but, but you're, you're right. It's these. These places where it's set back, it's elevated, there's a figure, and you're you're in this big open space. And by the way, just to let you know, these pictures, when I made them, like, you know, late 70s, early 80s, places now I couldn't photograph because, you know, security would come out and say, you can't have a a tripod out, you know, like that. So that's an interesting thing to think about now. I mean, you could photograph them 35 millimeter, you know, in other words, no tripods. But I I wanted to look around it just to see where people, you know, where they were were actually going to be doing whatever they were doing.
0: Why was that a place you ended up looking around?
1: Because it also uh, took me to places in L.A. that I had never been. In other words,
0: through
1: (laughs) through city, I mean, through uh, parts of uh, like Century City. And and again, I'm walking uh, with my camera through all these spaces I've never been. And then I come upon somebody reading a book. You know, and I make a picture very quickly and then just keep walking, you know. And so it's that thing of experiencing, experiencing the place actually where they're experiencing whatever they're doing there. You know, eating a sandwich or reading or sleeping. I have other, I have, by the way, just to mention that I have more negatives from all these bodies of work that I haven't printed still. So it's, there are other pictures that are going to come up later. But, you know, it's an interesting thing because I just didn't have... I mean, I made a lot of work and uh, some of the work sometimes if I maybe whether I overexpose the film slightly and overdeveloped it, well, some of the niggas are, are very dense. Well, I can now digitally, I can print something that I, I couldn't maybe print back then. And so that's another way of having the, these pictures will have another life, you know, later and technically, I mean, you know, digitally. So that's exciting, actually. And so I have a lot of work, I must say.
0: You mentioned a picture of a woman reading a book or a person reading a book. My favorite of this whole group and maybe my favorite of all your work is Public Use Areas Number 25. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. You said that you moved through these areas quickly, stopped, made a picture quickly, and moved on. There is nothing quick about Public Use Areas Number 25. It uh, uh, is—an historian would be tempted to say this is— the closest you get to referring to the Julian Shulman-style consideration of Los Angeles architecture and Western modernism, it is rectilinear, it is precisionist, it is acute, it is almost inhuman in the way the landscape makes the human exist within it. And it strikes me as really different from all the other public-use areas, pictures, which I which I love, but this one is... I mean, these, these, these rhododendrons and pine trees up behind her are just funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a picture with a sense of humor while it's being brutal. So did some of these take a little longer?
1: (laughs) No, no, I'm I'm really not exaggerating when I didn't. In other words, it's like a feeling. I said, oh, I'm moving and everything has to uh, just be like coming up to a bus stop and making that picture. Coming up to that woman reading a book, it happened as quickly as I can make the picture. Uh, it is not what you think it's, uh, I'm there for, you know, forever trying to do everything. No, no, it's as quick as I made the bus stop picture, I made that picture. Exactly the same way. It hadn't changed. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that whole page of page 100 and 101, and you have number 25, you have number 71, you have number 12, uh, 17, all in the same Exactly the same way. I see it. whoa, take it and move on. <laughs> and I, I'm, I mean, that's the part of the. You know, I, I use the word, and I've mentioned it to Aaron, and I mentioned to other people I've been interviewing. A lot of this stuff in later work, you know, it's it's like a challenge, you know, and you got to uh, work it out, so so to speak. I worked it out with the bus stop pictures and. And then that just led into these pictures. I mean, before the, I mean then the automotive led into the bus stops and bus stops led into the, this area. These kind of pictures. So they were kind of all overlapping, you know, and, and, but I was still working all in the same fluid way, which I really, really enjoyed, actually. So it was like the, it was like, if you think about it, even the 35 millimeter work I mean, this is just a general idea. Is like the. It's almost like you have a camera. You're in front of people, whatever. But it's almost like you don't have a camera anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's like you disappear. Well, that idea, and you know, it can. It's to be more specific. You know, you can think about certain kinds of pictures where you're standing in front of somebody, but they're not aware that you're actually. You're not there, and I'll give you an example, uh, which is one of my favorite pictures, an early 35 millimeter picture, but it, it it applies to the 5 by 7 work as well, not just that that picture. It's Persian Square, 1971. I mean, and that I that, that was also shot with Lewis's 50.
0: The public use area pictures date to the very early 1980s. The next couple bodies of work I'd like to talk about come after that. The Rodeo Drive pictures, which are color pictures of just the most vapid people you can imagine in and around Rodeo Drive, and the landscapes for the homeless pictures. Did the landscapes for the homeless pictures have to come after the Rodeo Drive pictures?
1: The first color work of Rodeo is also the last pictures of people. And I, I did get uh, an artist in residency uh, at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And I was going there in 86, and I thought I was going to photograph people on this trip. But it ended up, I ended up photographing the, these uh, shooting site areas near the Sunrise Mountain. People go out and target practice, and I was interested in all the stuff on the ground. And I started photographing that. That goes back to like that first gesture of me photographing all these scattered automobile parts in this empty lot. So this is a big empty desert areas that I was photographing. And that, that led, believe it or not, those shooting site pictures in Vegas led to the homeless pictures. And the reason I say that is because I was out there and sometimes if if you're not familiar with Vegas, the desert, it can really blow sometimes three days in in a row that it's so windy. And I was staying in a motel and I got so frustrated one day. I said, well, I got to do something. So I Walked from my hotel and ended up uh, walking past a freeway bridge and and I saw a little path along the side of that bushes and I said, What's back there and And I just went back in there and there were uh it was like a little homeless some homeless people had been there there was blankets and uh, you know food cartons and cigarettes and I made a few few pictures of that and then I continue all the shooting site pictures. So two years later, after I finished another, more pictures in, 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 in Angeles and so Forest of all the shooting side pictures, going through all that film, I found these few pictures and, and they weren't good. I mean, they were, they were just, oh, I said, oh, the, oh, that landscape was, I mean, homeless a, a site. And then I got the idea then I said, oh, I should do that now here in LA because there's you know, there are so many now that it began then it was homeless people. So that's how that happened. Actually, just that led into the other when I found that I had made a few pictures that I had forgotten about, you know. And that's how that, uh, if that gives you some kind of a clue and how I started the landscapes for the homeless. So it, it really is really, you know, one thing falling in place with the other, you know. But the Rodeo Drive. I was very happy to make that work, and and even though it's the last body of work I made of, of people,
0: Robert Adams's phrase for those pictures is that they are pictures of the negligent wealthy, which is an astonishing I mean, you know, Bob Adams can really write. That's that's that's. I mean, it's just a terrific phrase. Bob also has a great phrase on the landscapes for the homeless pictures. He he, he says that he reads the four as accusatory landscapes for the homeless, as if. That has been the landscape that has been acted upon humans by well people not thinking about either those humans or how they're, they're using the land. Is he right? Did, I mean, did you kind of intend the the title for the series to be accusatory?
1: I think I was. Uh, I would be a little more generous. I wanted to make some. Uh, I mean, when I start thinking about it, uh, yes, I was. I was thinking, oh, these are going to be uh, more of a uh, a landscape kind of picture or pictures of, you know, homeless sites because, they're you know, they're all over in parks and along the freeway, no man's land, so to speak, empty lots. And I started thinking, well, you know, I'm going to make these pictures, but who am I making them for, you know? And I'm saying, well, I'm making them for the people that are there. You know, I'm making them for, for the homeless. It's like my gift to show everybody that, they have their own place and they, they and and this is this is what it is you know and, and, but and people showed some of these pictures before but they they put the title titles uh, landscapes of the homeless you know, when when my title was landscapes for the homeless you know but anyway that that's if that kind of clarifies anything for you About them, Uh, happy I made them, and they—they were probably the toughest pictures I made, uh, you know, in in terms of having to be careful.
0: They're pictures that almost require a museum career, in the sense that you know, Beverly Hills collectors aren't likely to buy them, but institutional collectors will find a great deal to appreciate in them, from the formalism of them to themes that recur throughout the body of work they're really yeah they're tough um, pictures right yeah they're, they're tough but extraordinary pictures and some of them are just achingly beautiful to, uh, also i mean they're just really 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 pretty after you made the landscapes for the homeless pictures you made a couple of series of pictures that include Photographs where there are objects slammed up against the picture plane, whether it's like a chain link, link fence and whatever is blurry behind behind it, things like that. It, it looks in these pictures like you've gotten very interested at playing with the idea of the picture plane, at taking away depth of field. These are pictures that span a number of different series. What changed in what you were looking to capture or show
1: Right. Well, those pictures, what's happening is that I was photographing a lot of these uh, buildings that were um, in in downtown L.A., around L.A., downtown on the peripheries that were actually all, you know, closed up. And after a building is closed after a while, uh, you know, homeless people are, are always trying to get in, breaking in or using them or. Or, or around them and nobody's going to bother them because these are these empty buildings so that's a lot of these buildings are that's what it is they're they're just uh, uh, at that point not being used and i i really was just photographing you know that kind of thing that was uh, uh, around me that was i was looking at but i well, for instance page the la 15 there are a number of pictures like that, that's not the only one uh, which are really repetitive of, uh, of looking at uh, uh, reflections in, in um, glass. And yes, it's a very flat uh, field. And, and now it's repeated, by the way, in, in other pictures I've been making that aren't even in the book uh, now. And so that that kind of picture, I was interested in, in uh, and I knew that, that all these much more precise formal qualities are are absolutely falling in for these kinds of pictures. And again, to me, it's like I'm looking at a real detail of a building uh, and a number of buildings, but making a a series of photographs that that when you see more of them, it's actually even richer, you know, than just in a couple. So when you see a group of them, things really start happening in terms of relationships, you know, and, and playing off of each other. And I thought it was a very rich thing to do, and and not, I, mean, I hadn't seen people making those kinds of pictures, you know. So I enjoyed it uh, very much, you know. And, and again, it was having to walk and then find these buildings and then the right time. In other words, if I was walking by a building like that one right there, the L.A. 19, 1915, I mean number 15, uh, I photographed that right then. I didn't come back and say, I'm going to photograph in, in a better light or different light. That's, I was going by there, and I, I made that picture. Again, not in the same kind of way that in this fluid way. Whatever it was, that's what it was at that moment. You know?
0: two, two more things I want to ask about. One, it seems like in the last half decade or so, you've gotten more interested in beauty. Um, I'm thinking of a picture like Forever Number 74 from 2011, which is, um, I think, Erin O'Toole tells us in her text. It's a picture that shows a green light reflected in an auto tunnel, I think, in downtown L.A., probably the tunnel that goes right under Mocha, maybe. Did you get more interested in beauty?
1: Maybe I was more, in this very intuitive way, picking up all the you know color relationships and things like that. You know, and 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 maybe it's more of a, you know, again, it's extending this. You might say my own personal palette, you know, like that. For, especially, for, obviously, for color, I I'm going to use this word this word expression, because uh, you know, there's this. Kent Clark said that art is the highest form of human expression, and if we think about that, you know, it's a it it covers a, a It covers everything, actually, you know, and to me, because somebody asked me this before, I never thought of my own photographs. And I know there's that's the tradition, but I never thought of my own photographs. And I was never really happy with that term documentary, the start of that. And I always thought of it as a really a form. I mean, art as as a form of expression. And I think I always thought that that's what I was trying to do you know and um, so when you're questioning about the this now this uh, beauty yes but beauty in what you know beauty in something that people might think is not so beautiful why would you photograph that for instance the tree next to uh, 74 so forever 58 you know that and, and, and I'm, I'm aware of it because what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm controlling that because the relationship in that picture, what, what makes that happen is because I'm using a longer lens, which is bringing that background smack up against that tree. And I'm very aware of that because of using, and that's what I've been doing more recently, uh, Recently, meaning in the last 10, 10, 15 years of using longer lenses. And so compressing that space. And so yes, I'm very much aware of what I'm doing. If that means being aware of making something like that tree picture very beautiful, the way it's presented, yes, it's very I'm very, I'm very conscious of that and creating that. You know, but on the other hand, people would say, yes, but it's a tree. When there's that wire, there's for homeless putting their plastic bags of whole food up and stuff like that <laughs> and then all the carving the tree but look at it
0: no in the way that, the way you find the oranges and reds in the tree and you no know, it's really seductive uh, you know
1: and uh, a lot of the pictures uh, which you they, they go and uh, in terms of the forever pictures a lot of the pictures are made yes some of the at the edge of uh, downtown la but they go way over to um, the poor sections of LA, Compton, Watts, you know, uh, South Central. A lot of these pictures are made there, even though they're, you know, details of of uh, somebody being homeless, looking at what they're looking at. But again, I'm thinking of those places, that places that nobody w- would think uh, there's anything to photograph in there, uh, and it's pretty uh, grim or whatever. But to me, I think it, it's really a rich area. You just have to start, you have to find that richness, you know, and I think, I think that's what I've been doing.
0: Speaking of richness, the body of work called Discarded is pictures about and of Southern California in the wake of the Great Recession, housing developments that, that didn't happen or weren't finished or abandoned in the process after they'd already begun to be built, if you will there are a lot of pictures in this series that the that that again kind of get back into some of the new topographics area but i the, the 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 artist i see in these pictures a heck of a lot is john davola discarded number 50 uh, of an interior with a broken window uh, or a broken sliding door for example or even discarded number 12 of these uh, dying or dead palm trees in a in a vast landscape. Did you look at John's work or talk with John, or was his work in your mind as you work on this stuff?
1: No, I know John, and, but I I never, I never thought of, or I wasn't never thinking of John's pictures when I was making these kinds of pictures. And again, these pictures for me is going to places that I, that I had never been to before, even in Southern California. It was all new to me, and, and that's why I, I was in, in, enjoying, you know, going out to these places that I'd never been to, to, to see what's out there and to make these pictures. So, I mean, that's where I, that came from. And I, no, I, I, I never thought about uh, John's work in relationship to to my work. No, n- not at all. Yeah. And there's a body. That this is what you see here in the book is a part of it. There is a book published with 36 of these pictures for a discarded. Which was for the Eamon Carter Museum.
0: Oh yeah, the show last year.
1: Yes, and the and the book, the Israeli Press did a book for that show, which is a, a large, beautiful book actually. And uh, John Orbach wrote the introduction there for that book. But it's a limited thing; it's only two hundred copies printed actually that they have at the museum. And so there's that. That's a very good. I mean, that covers thirty six pictures. That and and I forget how many pictures are here in this book, but. Anyway, that's uh, that's the last body of work that I, I was working on up to the point of this, uh, sh- you know, show.
0: Finally, you make pictures of the undersides of freeways, the underparts of overpasses, a whole lot of them of automotive infrastructure of all sorts. You even, you know, by by the early two thousands, are making really formally elegant pictures of of the undersides of freeways a picture like oakland number 1 however you nowhere in this show is there something that has become sort of a ritual for los angeles based artists over the last 50 years and that is a picture of a freeway or an image of a freeway itself did you ever why or why not
1: i guess i haven't but i but the, all the pictures of uh, under freeway bridges and all that uh, yes, I have made a lot of them, and, and what it is, it's the light. You know, it's incredibly different light, and that's what drew me to make those pictures there. But yeah, no, I haven't made p- pictures of uh, freeways. A lot of other people have, you know. Obviously, Catherine Opie made some really good pictures, and other people. But
0: some of that, I imagine, is because you like to walk, and and it's kind of hard to walk down the ten. But is there also a conceptual decision that uh, that's just not for me or
1: oh yeah i mean i would i would say that if i was thinking oh i'm going to photograph freeways i no, i would say you know i guess i'd want something and maybe that's kind of a, a little bit of a if i can use the word intimate if those were intimate moments in the street photographs black and white and the landscapes of the homeless are these intimate details of you know that experience so maybe I'm drawn to that, and maybe that's why I would not do other things like that, you know. And the only thing that's maybe less intimate but still in, in that direction even is the discarded pictures as well. When you see the, more of them, you know, the, the references. Uh, so I guess I like that idea that something can be intimate and close and non-close, and you know, and, and there.
0: Anthony Hernandez, thanks so much.
1: Thank you very much, Tyler.
0: The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region demonstrating that southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers, opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Run for President by artist Catherine Andrews, open through January 8th. The Dallas Morning News calls the show presciently timed and eerily paralleling the circus-esque plotline of the 2016 presidential election. Experience how film props, iconic imagery, and polished steel sculptures create a visual connection between electoral politics, media, and mass spectacle. More information at NasherSculptureCenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Getty Museum curator Karen Hellman, who has organized Real Ideal, Photography in France, 1847-1860, to which is on view at the Getty through November 27th. Her show looks at how early French photographers engaged in cultural and intellectual discourse with their peers in fields such as painting and fiction. The exhibition catalog, it's really good, was published by the Getty. Amazon offers it for $60. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Karen Hellman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Real ideal in the show's title. Could you define what, what those words and then the mashup of those words refers to?
2: Initially came from a Victor Hugo quote, which I use in the introductory text in the exhibition. It is by the real that we exist and the ideal that we live or along those lines. And I found it interesting that this was something that's True at all times, really, but it's a, it's kind of interesting to look at it in particular in this particular period of photography in mid-19th century France. Because at the same time that photography was developing in the 18, late 1840s, 1850s as an art form, artists and writers were also combating a kind of academic model of painting and writing that was... Less to do with the world around them and more to do with the academic model of, of biblical and mythological scenes. So I thought it was interesting that to kind of look at photography developing in this context, France is particularly interesting because it's where we get the sort of realist painting movement of Corbet, the the writing of Balzac, etc.
0: So considering this this academic ideal and real world sort of divide how do photographers who are of course playing with new technology really where do they come down
2: that's a good question so essentially they're in both categories just like the artists and the writers what i thought was interesting is that photography had this kind of has this unique tie to the real and photographers were grappling with that characteristic of this new medium, but at the same time trying to alter it in a way or, or, or work with it in a way, experiment with it as a medium that could maybe create more idealized images. So taking everyday subjects, but then idealizing them in some way. But what I find interesting is that even while they're idealized, they tend to still catch details and sort of parts of the real picture that that inevitably have to be there because it's a camera recording the scene rather than a painter sorry <laughs> so like in the you know I think of I'm just the first thing I think of is the the geese in the Andre in the Giroux photograph you get this this little cluster of ghostly geese and um, that's something you can't necessarily plan on when you're photographing. In the same photograph, if you look more closely, you'll see there's a there's a little figure of a woman on the steps of um, the building in the back. These little details that I think you can't choreograph completely in a photograph.
0: It, it's almost like you're describing that photographers are dealing with almost all of the same intellectual issues and opportunities that painters and novelists are yet we consider painters artists and teach painting as art and traditionally at least in the United States photography um, is in its own silo.
2: Right yeah I that's what I was interested in looking at it's a with these four photographers that I who are um, the four selected for the exhibition it's Gustave Gray, Henri Lesec, Charles Neg and Edouard Baldus. And I did that really because, well, for multiple reasons, but three of these, all of them actually were moved to Paris to become painters. So they started out as artists, as painters, uh, and, and three of them actually met in the studio of the academic painter Paul Delaroche. So they had this pre-photography history together, or not necessarily together, but Pre-photo history as painters, so it's a it's a little bit convenient because they were already each of them had already had to confront themselves as painters and and sort of figure out how they were how they would fit into that realm as artists, and so it, it's maybe easy or sort of presumptive to think that they would put the same artistic painterly problems into their photographs. So I think. What I was trying to do was see if that was true. And what I kept finding in the photographs is really a slightly different vision than, than simply um, a painter making pictures.
0: Before I ask how that vision surfaces differently, one quick historical note. In Britain, early photographers, particularly Roger Fenton, also trained as painters in America at this, this time in the 1850s and 60s. We don't so much have photographers trained as painters, and historians have not spent a lot of energy or time on detailing the links between painting in America and photography in America. But back to France. So what differences did you find?
2: For instance, in comparing the way that these photographers photographed architecture, there were instances where if you look at Le Gray's photograph for the mission heliographique which was this government commission to send photographers out uh, in 1851 and record the architectural patrimony of france before it was altered and renovated a picture that he made of the church at aubeterre so drone and rather than trying to capture uh, the whole building or depict it frontally, it's taken from the side, it's taken not as a whole, but as a kind of more of an approach to the building. And he also puts Miss Strahl, his student and, and photographic companion, in the doorway. And to me, and I, I guess that's sort of like the geese in Giroud, there's a there's a kind of presentness and in-the-moment experience of the cathedral that you get in the photograph that I don't think is true of painting. And I want to say that he was aware of that and that that's, that's what makes these photographs so powerful is that even though these were painters trying out photography, they really seem to understand something about the photographic medium that was different than painting. Well, I mean, even we have, we've borrowed several really wonderful works from institutions in Paris. And one of those institutions is the Bibliothèque Nationale, which has a great deal of works by Le Gray and all of these photographers. And the, the first photograph that you see right next to the intro text is a, is a portrait, a kind of portrait of Le Gray in the mirror of a armoire. And he's photographing the the armoire the the piece of furniture that he's decided to capture but he's also capturing himself in the mirror and you can see a sort of blurry shadow of of the photographer and i find that really kind of unique at the time to sort of think about photography and think about including oneself in the image like that
0: there are a number of subjects that recur Throughout the show, we've been talking about buildings, for example, intact buildings. <laughs> but there are also a lot of Roman ruins. So so within the context of the real and the ideal, does that play into how photographers are choosing their subjects? Are they being determinative in that way?
2: The way I see it is in terms of the architecture, they're capturing both the ideal structure, like a Gothic cathedral which you know at the time and still today we think of French Gothic architecture as, as, as a real masterful moment in architecture. They're capturing that, but also including it in a in a in its real context. Defined particularly in sex. Photograph of of Rennes that we also borrowed from the Arts Décoratif, or Baldus's photograph of Amiens, where you see the cathedral itself, and you 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 grasp the the glory of that architecture, but it's also juxtaposed with the modern or contemporary at the time town of Rennes in in Le Sec and Amiens in Baldus, so you get the that juxtaposition. To me, that's this combination of real ideal i know it's a little bit of a stretch in some ways but i think it's this unique ability of photography to capture both we could also say real ideal plays out in just this the subjects themselves not just in juxtaposing the gothic architecture with modern city but uh, when you look at le gray's photograph of a factory outside of paris that that's, an uh, to me, a very obvious way of confronting or taking as a subject the a more contemporary architectural structure and putting it in the landscape and making a really kind of evocative, sort of almost romantic image of the factory.
0: You know, one of the subjects I was, I don't know if surprised to see here so much, but that definitely caught my attention was all of the pictures of forests. And we think of, you know, Corbet and and the realists and the Barbizon bunch going out into the forests and making lots and lots and lots of paintings. Major subject for photographers such as Le Gray as well. Why? Why why did they go?
2: Because Le Gray and his, the fellow photographers all kind of started as painters. It wasn't like they picked up photography and took it to a different place to experiment with, they went to where other artists were also experimenting, where they themselves had probably also painted. So the Fontainebleau photographs are really interesting because they are literally the same terrain, the same landscape that painters are painting at the same time. I think it's important to note that these are some of the first subjects that Le Gray and Neg uh, and Lesec go to, to experiment, to 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 try out their photographs. And I think in the context that it, it was also in the context of the shift towards landscape painting and landscape as a subject was becoming more and more credible and deemed kind of worthy of artistic representation. And as we know with the Barbizon, and and onward which we just saw with Rousseau the landscape painting was was becoming an an accepted subject for artists to take on well like for instance Le Gray submitted a lot of his some of his photographs of the Forest of Fontainebleau to the Salon and they were rejected but they were exhibited in the industrial exhibition so it was kind of Maybe this first material that they were using to try to submit to it within the fine arts context, it didn't work, but it was what they what these photographers went to first to to become photographic artists.
0: I mean, in the context of this show, it sure does, because you also have photographers like Lesec making still lifes. You have nudes, kind of very French, post-academic, if you will, looking nudes. I mean, there's a lot of commonality in not just subject, but even in composition.
2: True. The, the still lifes by Lesec, we're very happy to get to borrow, in fact, because they're very uh, light-sensitive, these cyanotype prints. But you can see he's very attentive to still life painting in the 18th century. In France, this idea of kind of making a life-size still life composition in front of the viewer as if you could kind of reach in and pick up the object
0: and where you can see a window in a bottle just as you can in you know centuries of of northern european still life painting
2: and i do like the one that there's only two in the show but one of them is the is the wine bottle with the label on it that says fantasy and i like that collision of the the word fantasy with the fact that it's a photograph and and then right
0: below the word is lissac's name
2: right and his name and then to the left is a is the lens for the camera so there's this uh i like that he he's he's making a painterly composition but he's including photographic instruments in there as well
0: So finally, do any of the photographers in in your show have knowledge of what their peers, their photographic peers, are doing in England, elsewhere on the continent, or even in the U.S.?
2: They do, actually. And that's what's kind of interesting about this period as well in France, is they form very early on a photographic society, and um, that's in 1851. It's the first one that we know of in the world, I guess, that gets people together of all stripes, scientists, painters, artists, writers, etc., come together with this common interest in photography. And part of what they eventually form as the Société Française Photographique, which is still around today and from which we borrowed um, a very important album for the exhibition, that society would host exhibitions and it was a way to show the work of the society members but also to expose work by photographers in other countries and a big one was the UK and England but also United States so there was a circulation of Photographs. So they and you can look at the Societe Francaise Photographique, um, the SFP, really as it's called. They have uh, records of who exhibited in each of their exhibitions, and uh, there's a whole range of nationalities there. Paul Louis Robert writes a great essay in the catalogue and recounts some of those exhibitions. So I, I think they they definitely had a knowledge of what other uh, photographers were doing in other places, but I think at the same time they were also, because they were relatively early, these are some of the first photographers working with paper negatives and the negative positive process at a time when, at least in the United States, you had a uh, sort of delayed interest in paper photography, and it was predominantly um, the daguerreotype that was used there in the in the in at least in this period the late 40s early 50s and then in Britain you have the patent that Talbot puts out on his paper process so you have the these other countries that are have photographers are interested in these things but they're not exploring them in the same way as the French because they're somehow in this kind of loophole of (laughs) paper photography where they're kind of innovating a lot of the a lot of these compositions and, and photographs that they're making are are relatively kind of the first of their kind. And so I think they're both aware of what's going on in other countries, but they're also probably influencing it. And or I'd like to think so. they would like to think think so as well, but you know I mean and you know I think of the great exhibition in London. this isn't in France, but you have you know a lot of these French photographers exhibiting there alongside the British and the german and the and the american um so they did see each other and they saw each other pretty early on when you think about eighteen fifty one
0: and then they saw each other in France in eighteen sixty seven at the at the Paris World's Fair at the
2: so I think that's still something that needs to be done is really a comparison of the cross-national uh, early photography and sort of who was, who was influencing whom and, or, or really what, what were they seeing in each other.
0: Excellent. Karen Hellman, thanks so much.
2: Ah, You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.